Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Focus Seacast. I'm your host Focus, and today I'm talking with Chris of Esoteric Agriculture in Pennsylvania. Chris has been plant breeding, homesteading, seed saving, as well as breeding some livestock for over a decade. But before we get to today's conversation, I'd like to shout out Marilyn Masher. You can find them on Instagram at Marilyn underscore Masher, as well as Meow's Trap Seeds. Find him on Instagram at Meow's Trap Seeds number two. They were very gracious and donated some seeds for Patreon members. You can become a supporter of the show at patreon.com forward slash focus seedcast and be able to get some of those seeds. So check it out, guys. Don't miss out. Without further delay, here's Chris. So, how's it going, Esoteric Agriculture? Uh, it's not too bad. I'm healthy, my family's healthy. And a lot to be said for that. Yeah, especially these days. Yes. So, uh, how'd you get started with the homesteading and the plant breeding? Okay. That's a fine question, isn't it? Um, the homesteading stuff was basically a, a lifelong dream of mine, but I wasn't able to do it on any real large scale. Um, we got the house we live in now which was about 12 years ago and we have four acres here and the four acres affords us a lot of space to do more or less whatever we want to do here so we can have livestock we can have fruit trees and really extensive vegetable gardens flower gardens all of that was a a long-term aspiration but it took a long time to get to a position where we could get a property with enough land out in the country to make it happen um, the plant breeding end of things oh man I mean the plant breeding stuff was something I had been wanting to do for many years and I kind of dabbled in and off and on I have been saving seeds since I was in high school um, so I've been a very long-term seed saver and just really interested in plant propagation and growing things from seed. So that I think is always the gateway to plant breeding is seed saving and seed starting. Um, I really kind of got kicked into it, uh, because of definitely, I don't know if you know who Carol Deppie is. Yeah. I've, um, I've read, uh, breeding your own vegetable yeah. varieties. So yep. I've got that book for Christmas probably about 12 or 15 years ago and was pretty amazed by that book. Um, and then back in the day when uh, internet forums were more of a thing than they are today, um, I found a forum called Homegrown Goodness and there are a lot of really interesting people on there. Um, a lot of them were doing like weird small scale plant breeding projects, a lot of it focusing on more vegetables and homesteading type stuff. And those are probably the two biggest influences on me. And then a lot of the people that, you know, you kind of met in that world uh, were super influential. Uh, like Joseph Lofthouse was a really big influence besides Carol Deppie. Um, and there's another YouTuber um, who was who also on Homegrown Goodness, uh, Oxbow Farm. And like that guy was a real huge influence on me also. Just Okay. Yeah. There, there's a lot of other people too, but those are like definitely some of the biggest ones. Okay. So do you have a background in horticulture or it's something you just got into? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, okay. No, uh, I've been a professional horticulturist for 20 years. Um, I did not actually go to school for that. I actually went to school for, originally for commercial art and communications. So like graphic design and animation, illustration, things like that. Uh, I eventually quit that and then switched to biology. And I did several years in biology. And then I stopped going to college. And then a few years later, I got the job I have now, which is the, the same job. Um, currently, I'm the, the head grower at a large wholesale nursery. Um, so it's a really big operation where there's hundreds of employees. And so, I mean, yeah, like commercial horticulture is something I've done for decades. Okay. Yeah, I come kind of one foot in that world, the other foot in the farming world. So I, I definitely, I feel you on that. So, yep. Um, so yeah, so talk a little bit about your climate and your growing conditions. So I live in uh, Southern Pennsylvania and it's a, it's a, basically it's a humid continental climate. We have generally cold winters. It's supposed to be zone 6B. I mean, it varies, you know, some years it's colder than 6B and some years it's a lot warmer. Um, but it's, it's all over the place. The summers here are generally hot and they can be dry. Uh, it's always humid and it's often really, really hot. Um, the soil here is, it's more or less clay based, but it's not the worst. And it's like actually a pretty fertile soil, but it's full of rocks. And the biggest problem here is how many rocks I have. It's almost impossible to put a stake in or dig a hole without hitting a bunch of huge rocks. Yeah, you sound pretty similar to where I'm at as far as that goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yeah. it's like not the easiest like land to work, okay? It's like, you know, it's hard soil to work, but it is fertile soil. So, I mean, that's a positive. It's deep soil here. Um, I know from having drilled wells at work and stuff that we can go 70, 100 feet down before we hit bedrock. And I mean, that doesn't mean that it's all like great topsoil, but if you have a plant that can push roots deep down, it can find water. So um, the spot that I'm in has a lot of steep springs, natural springs. Uh, it's a pretty wet spot. Um, and the property here is actually quite wet. And I've had to do a lot of work with making swales to try to carry the water away, making a lot of raised beds, um, just water management things here to keep things functional um and not that it's like a swamp here all the time right now it's dry and when it's dry here it is dry but on a wet year yeah there's parts of my yard that have standing water all the time so i have to be careful yes yeah, so you guys yeah, have been uh, yeah i've gotten you haven't gotten any rain for like what three three or four weeks well we've had a tenth of an inch in the last 10 days prior to that we had an inch and a half over two weeks but it was all split up in like two tenths of an inch and three tenths of an inch yeah yeah so we've been ha yeah we had the same thing it was like dry and then we got a bunch of thunderstorms kind of rolling yeah in so last i mean week. yeah it, it was better than nothing and i'll certainly take it but it's not the same to get you know little dink dink rains over the course of a week and not get a real actual inch of rain in one shot yeah so it's rapidly drying out here so it can be <clears throat> it's, a, it's a challenging climate and 
one of the things that I think about the plant breeding thing is if you have a challenging climate, that can be great because you can put a lot of huge selective pressure on plants, you know, with your climate. This is also why there really should be regional plant breeding. I mean, a lot of the plant breeders are, are awesome, but they're also in an area that's totally different than my climate. Um, you know, or you're probably pretty similar to mine. Yeah. If you, yeah. Yeah. If you're breeding plants in Oregon or Utah, you know, or Maine, it's totally different than here. They're more like the Mid-Atlantic. So I think there's definitely a need for people to be doing stuff in, in this area. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I'm, I'm kind of doing basically that. I'm trying to irrigate as little as possible just so that things get adapted to kind of the, the southern New England climate. Yep which is, yeah, pretty, pretty similar to what your seems to be the same for you. We get, you know, hot summers, humid, we get thunderstorms, they can get dry. And then, you know, we can also have really wet springs and wet falls, get the kind of, you know, cold yeah. snow in the winter. Yep. Yep. All that good stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> so um, what kind of, yeah. what was that? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So what, what kind of, growing methods are you using are you pretty much organic using not using a lot of irrigation i don't use a lot of irrigation mostly because i've never got around to setting it up if i have to irrigate i generally either just go out and spot water with a hose or i just take buckets out and dump a little bit on certain plants um so i'm not generally using wholesale irrigation on anything so this sort of a uh, hot dry stuff is bad but it does put an intense selective pressure on things. So that's kind of, you know, it's good and bad both, right? If you want to actually get a productive yield for your family, not irrigating things is not the best. Um, yeah. As far as um, fertility, um, I, I seldom use any kind of uh, inorganic nitrogen. We have animals, so I have basically infinite manure. All my neighbors have animals, so there's always manure to be had. And I can get organic matter and compost from my work. So most stuff is mulch. And, you know, it's easy for me to get manure and organic matter. So I don't really have issues with that kind of thing. So um, I do as little tilling as possible, although there are some stuff that I do till for. Um, but I, I probably like three quarters of the stuff I do is no till. Um, so. So and how much as, how much yeah. acres do you have in production then? That's a fine question. Um, actual like vegetable gardens right now, it's probably on the order of like between a third and a half of an acre. This year I pushed it up a little bit. It's probably closer to half an acre total vegetable gardens. Um, I have about an acre of orchard and I have about an acre and a half of pasture. So there's a lot of... Um, like food production, if you throw in all the fruit and nut trees and dairy bushes and the you know, livestock, there's a lot of stuff. Okay. You know, yeah. Yeah. You're probably on the same scale as I am as far as like veg production and acreage overall. Yeah. That's a lot for like, you know, it's, it's almost entirely myself. I mean, I have, you know, a family, but they don't do that much with it. My children are really little and it's mostly just me. So that's about as much as one person working a full-time job can manage. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the crops uh, that you that you grow and you breed. Definitely want to talk about okay. like uh, some potatoes because I'm I'm growing yeah. the the seed you gave me out right now, and so far it's been yeah. pretty good. But but yeah, like so yeah, jump in on the potatoes. So the potato thing, the um, the true potato seed thing, I've been messing around with that for at least the last 10 years. Um, most of my seed had come from Tom Wagner in the past, and most of it was diploids, which are not the easiest to grow around here. Um, I had gotten a few tetraploids from the uh, uh, Curzio Carvati and the Kenosha Potato Project years back. Okay, yeah. Those worked yeah. out, yeah, they worked out a lot better. Um, and I kind of stopped that for a few years. And then um, when I started following Oxbow Farm on YouTube, he does all these, or he used to do all these potato reveal videos. And they were, they were really pretty amazing. Um, and then I found the potato reveal video genre, which is also, you know, it's really geeky, but it's kind of cool in its own way. Yeah. Um, so he sent me a bunch of seed, uh, diploids and tetraploids both. And I planted those out uh, last year. 2019 I did a huge grow out I wanted to plant 200 plants 100 of each kind diploid and tetraploid and then just select for you know various good characteristics and then replant those tubers and then watch them a year and then save seed if they would make seed you know from those tubers so that's where I'm out now so I didn't sow any seed this year but I saved back maybe a dozen or two dozen varieties and then I replanted the tubers and now I'm hoping they'll actually make seed this year and I can save seed from the best of what I saved as tubers. And I'm pretty happy with what is happening right now. It's starting to dry out now, but prior to that, it's been a pretty good year. Uh, the only bad part is that I lost most of the diploids. We had two hard frosts after the plants were up out of the ground. The first frost burned all the foliage off all the potatoes, and then they all grew back. And then the second frost burned them off again. And after the second frost, almost none of the diploids grew back. Um, but a few did, right? So a few that did, if they actually end up making any berries, then that's awesome because um, they're the ones that survived, right? So um, I actually think the ones that survived were the highest dormancy ones, and they were just really late to break out and grow. But that's probably a good trait to select for in diploid potatoes in my climate. Um, but yeah, I guess my long-term hope for the potatoes is that, like, say this year, I could save seed from them. And if it doesn't work this year, okay, it'll work next year. And then eventually when I can get a good seed crop, I'll just repeat. I'll plant out another 200 plants or 150 plants and then just keep doing that. But I don't want to save the same tuber clones endlessly. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, not if I can keep refreshing it from seed. And I suppose my thought is that over five or 10 or 15 years, eventually I'll get seed, you know, strains. I'm not even sure strains and varieties is the right term, but I'll get a population or a Grex or something of these potatoes that work really well in my climate. And that would also work well in other people's climates. Okay. So that's, that's what I'm kind of hoping for with the potatoes. And I think I can do it. I really feel like I feel real, really good this year after watching things grow on this year. So wait, are you leaving, when you said that they got frost, do you, you're leaving these tubers in the ground over winter? No, I mean, although you never get them all, right? But, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, so in my climate, 
they do overwinter, and I've never actually like tried to have them overwinter. But when I miss them, it seems like most of them come back. But I plant really early because I want to get as much growth as possible before um, we get hot and dry. Oh, I got um, you. Okay. I mean, but I don't have it. Well, potatoes, especially where I plant them, I have no way to irrigate them, and uh, they're in my orchard, and it's far away from the house, and it's far away from any source of water, so they have to be on their own. So I, I want to get them in the ground early, right? So most years I plant them around March 15th, and most years that works out okay. I mean, if you plant them March 15th here, they usually won't be sprouted up good until April 15th, and by April 15th, like four years out of five, we don't get any more frost. This year we got two hard frosts after April 15th. So, yeah, it was it was bad in that sense. Um, okay, I got you. But you know, yeah, all all these disasters though are still they're opportunities. So it's it's unfortunate, but it's a, whatever comes through that you know, it has whatever set of traits that are advantageous for that. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, so you usually don't get that much seed yield the first the first season. Then planting uh, from seed, it's usually the second year after you save the tuber. Um, no, like I, I would have got a tremendous yield last year. Um, so I'm just not sure about it this year because the timing is really off. Like I think at this time last year, I would have already had a ton of berries set. The last year they didn't frost it off. So this year they frosted off twice and it set them way back. So they're flowering now really well. Um, but I, I don't see any berries set. I guess I'm a little concerned that they won't set because it's so hot. I don't know that for sure i know tomatoes won't set if it gets above a certain temperature threshold so i'm assuming it's the same i could be wrong about that yeah i guess time will tell yeah i'm having the same problem right now where like my the so i planted it out that the the tps you gave me and i put yep. i put in pretty good sized plants uh probably like 20 19 yep. 20 of them and right now they're like yep. they're flowering but then you know they don't set they just the, the flowers fall off and the ovule just like drops right off the plant so I think it's probably yep. it's probably heat stress. Yeah, that's my best guess because I don't have any berries yet either. So that's why I mean like, well, okay. If they don't make any berries this year, there's always next year. So yeah. Yeah. I'll so just I'm, keep running. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping to select whatever tubers are the best and then overwinter those and in, well, inside. Exactly. Inside. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Plant yeah them and out just again. repeat. You know? Yeah. You just keep hitting repeat and just eventually, <laughs> eventually it'll happen and it'll work itself out. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so um, I'm also growing out your Grex squash, the summer squash. So I thought it'd be cool oh, to talk about that a little bit. One. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably my longest term breeding project. And it's definitely one of my favorites. Um, so the, the genetics from that originally came from Ken Etlinger of the Long Island Seed Project. Um, and I used to be a listed member of the Seed Savers Exchange. And that's how I originally found out about Ken Etlinger. And that guy was like a, a big deal long time ago, seed savers. Um, and I think you can still find a lot of his articles if you look up Long Island Seed Projects online. But he did a lot of plant breeding and he was one of the people who was doing work that was pretty close to me. The Long Island climate's a little more mild than this one, but it's close enough. You know, that like if his stuff does well for him, it would do really well for me. And I got really interested in his squash because a lot of his squash and then some of his melons, he had gotten material from Cornell University where they were 
breeding for mildew resistance or insect resistance. And then he was crossing this into some like really old heirloom varieties for flavor or appearance. And then, so I got some seed from him directly, maybe 12 or 15 years ago. And I ran with it for several years. I was really concerned that it had got crossed up with jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. And I contacted him and he was basically more or less retired and, and done with the whole stuff. But he told me that there was a seed company he had given all the seed to. I contacted them and they had the stuff, the same genetics, and I got them back and then started running with them again. And then gradually I do cross in other varieties from time to time. And uh, yeah, what I'm really breeding for with that is contrary to everybody else who seems to breed summer squash, especially all the big seed companies, is that I'm breeding for super aggressive vines that root at the nodes so that they live all year. Because what I found is that strong vigor rooting at the nodes and big vines will allow the squash plant to live all year. The bush type ones, they will eventually die no matter what. Um, I am also breeding for insect and disease resistance, and that's really helpful too. Um, I mean, I, I'm really aggressive with those squash. When, uh, when I plant them, I usually put 10 or 15 seeds in each hole, and I thin it down to the best three to five. That, you know, you select for good germination and strong plants. And then if I start to see plants early on that have signs of like significant disease or insect pressure, I pull those plants out. And then I mark and save the best 10% maybe each year. And then beyond that, I actually store the summer squash as winter squash. And I don't even know if there's a good reason to do this, but I just do this anyway. Whichever one's stored the longest then, and then I save seed from those. Um, okay. So I put these things through all kinds of like nonsense, you know, to try to like push them. And I'm pretty happy with them. Like they're super vigorous. I can basically always get squash up until frost now. Uh, and, and you can grow them in like pretty abusive organic conditions. Uh, I don't want to say that they're perfectly clean, you know, because they will get some disease and insects. But if you have a vigorous enough plant, it sort of keeps out running the pest. Um, I also, I also am selecting for prickly plants. Um, and I know that's a hassle to, to pick around, but I have a lot of deer and a lot of groundhogs. So I want to select for plants that are, like deer and raccoon groundhog resistant. So, okay. It's yeah. A, it's a very different, you know, uh, w way of thinking than, you know, modern uh, commercial uh, summer squash. Yeah. Cause I, I've been growing them out and I kind of did the same thing where I have, I have two rows of about like, I want to say 20 plants each. And then I did like, yep. you know, a couple seeds per, you know, per two feet. Yep. And then I thinned them down and, I was thinking, I was like, oh, maybe I should pull these viney ones out. And then I was like, no, nah, I'm going to leave them because they actually might do better. So I'm glad that's what you were kind of selecting for. So now that I heard that, I'll yeah, definitely I still, I'll yep. keep them. Yeah. I still get some ones that are less viney. I think like last year, every one was viney, but they vary in like how aggressive the vines are. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I am more, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to select for super aggressive vines, but they vary. Um but yeah, I think you'd be happy with those. I mean, I have never got one that tastes bad. I mean, they all taste good um, and they taste different. And I think that's, you know, you could easily start selecting down for, oh, I really like this color or this flavor. You could self those plants and then try to stabilize that a, a variety. Um, I've never got one that I was so 
happy with that I wanted to just do that, but someone else easily could. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I might start messing with that because that's one thing that I, I want to work towards is the is the flavor aspect. Because if you've been selecting yeah. for the disease resistance, then it'll be good it'll be good to know like, all right, this one does well in my area and it tastes well. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean I think they should do real well for you. I don't yeah. That's just a, a neat project that I've just been real happy with. Um, I mean, it's not my longest term thing, but it's it's really high up there. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely let you know how that that comes out this year. Um, yeah, the only thing the other thing I wanted to ask you about was those red Dutch lima beans. So where did that where did that seed originally come from? Okay, so uh, the seed came from Happy Cat Seeds, and the owner operator of that operation is Tim Mounts, and I haven't even checked in the last couple of years. I mean, I hope he's still in business. Um, I don't have any reason to think he's not, but um, I mean, I went to a talk of his, there's a conference in Pennsylvania called the PASA conference, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture. Oh, probably 10 years ago, he gave a talk there on how to run your own seed farm. And it was very detailed about the economics of it and like how you thresh seed, how you store seed, you know, how you harvest seed commercially because you know and so on and so forth and it was a really great talk i took a lot of notes on it and then a couple of years after that <clears throat> excuse me sorry i had the opportunity to do a co-presentation with him on seed saving um and honestly i don't even know why i was in the position of doing it because he was really the better person to talk to i guess they were talking to me as more of a homesteader or backyard scale and he'd be more of the commercial side but at this um seed saving talk it was also a seed swap so everyone was encouraged who came to bring seed to swap and him and i brought lots of seeds because we have lots of seeds to swap so i swapped some stuff that he was interested in and he gave me these red dutch lima beans um and i don't know whether there's something that came from someone in his family or just something he found in the local area um but that's a great variety um it's definitely better adapted to my area the jackson wonder which is a similar variety it's, it's a bush variety with like a dark colored seed but this uh red dutch is a more attractive colored seed and it's more productive and it's just a better variety really a pretty really a pretty seed actually uh, and real easy to grow just an awesome variety yeah i've been working with uh some dry beans uh, i've been like my thing is pole beans that's like my Thing I really yeah. like to work with, but yep. uh, yeah, I grew those and they've been doing great. And I've been trying to do, I've been messing with Jacob's cattle for a couple of years and I'm doing a seed increase now. And oh I'm, yeah. I'm actually, yep. I'm actually thinking about just dropping that after this year and then maybe going with the lima beans and a couple other varieties instead. It's just, it's, I don't know. I guess it's more, it's more the, one of the ubiquitous dry beans and. Yes, know. Jacob's cattle is. I mean, it's a perfectly good variety. I I yeah. used to grow that one years back, and then I felt like um, I made a decision some years back to not grow any more bush dry common beans. And if I was going to grow a bush dry bean, it would either be a cowpea or a lima bean. And the reason for that is basically that cowpeas and lima beans have way way less pest pressure. Um, all the various bugs that go after common beans don't go after those two nearly as badly. And they're also more heat and drop tolerant. Um, yeah. And honestly, also, like, you know, it's a different yeah. species too. 
than my pole beans. Yeah. So I can, yeah. So that's yeah. why I was like, oh, I can do more pole beans and I can plant these in between and I don't have to worry about cross pollination. So, yeah, that's another thing. Cause like I, I'm still growing like whole regular common beans, right? So that's what I decided is that like, oh man, I'm not going to grow any more bush dry beans. Like I can just grow lima beans and cowpeas for my dry beans. And that way it's, it's easier because for, for me, beans do cross. Um, they cross a lot, actually. Um, way more than what like the general accepted literature is and I know it varies based on your area but for me beans cross a pretty good bit 15% 20% maybe so it's it's very noticeable after a couple generations so oh, I have wow. to be really careful you know so, either, what do you have for isolation distances on those um, well so right now I'm not even trying to keep like like pole or half runner beans like completely pure anymore. Um, I just gave up on it basically. Uh, so I had a lot of like heirloom beans and I was saving them. And after a while I got more and more crosses. And initially it was really disheartening, but I decided to look at it as an opportunity because with a crop that mostly self pollinates like beans, like say you get 15% crossing. Okay, well you got 85% that are still self pollinating. so if you take that cross seed and plant it out, it's gonna self most of the time. And it's really easy then to start selecting new varieties out. So that was more the route that I decided to go is that, okay, whenever I see crosses show up, I'm just gonna to try to take that as an opportunity to select new varieties. And that's what I've been doing. And I'm pretty happy with that actually. Like I think I've bred some really nice beans that I really like that are getting fairly stabilized. I'm always a little bit hesitant to then like, release them out to somebody else because in order to do that I'd have to either do like a really big isolation distance or just be like well I'm not going to grow any other common beans at all except for this one variety and I may eventually do that if I get a variety that's nice enough like I have um, specific breeding goals or dreams that I'd like to achieve with them and if I ever get one of those things to come true then I'd probably focus on that all right yeah, because I, I, you know, I've read everything from like, you can plant them um, 10 feet apart from each other to like 100 feet to like, you need to have a barrier. I don't know. It's, I, I haven't had too many, too many problems with crossing, but I only do yeah. like, you know, one or two varieties um, in one area, probably like, you know, 50, 75 feet from each other. So. Oh yeah. I mean, I used to just plant them like, I mean, my assumption was that they would not cross at all. So I would plant dozen varieties within 20 30 feet and you know after two years or so you start to see the evidence and you're like oh crap this is just all mixed up you know yeah yeah all right well that's yeah that's pretty interesting so um so then what what's like your what are your some of your like real long-term like your big projects the stuff you really want to see do well I mean, stuff that I've been working on a long time or things that are like far future, like things that I want to accomplish. I guess both, like what's your pet projects? Like the thing that you're like really into as far as seed breeding goes. Oh man. Unfortunately I have too many. So <laughs> you can stop me if I'm getting too ridiculous here. Um, so I, I'm working with common beans. Most of what I'm working with is more or less in like the half runner category. Um, and um just looking for interesting things like different colored pods or just good vigorous 
uh, disease-resistant, healthy plants. Um, as far as, I started doing um, sweet potato tree seed last year, and I didn't actually sow any of the seed that I saved, but I did plant out more varieties that I think will produce uh, more tree seed. So I'm hoping to get more sweet potato tree seed this year. I had a couple volunteer seedlings pop up this year, and I had one volunteer seedling pop up last year. So that's super promising because it shows me that I'm in, going in the right direction. And I guess long term, I'd like to do a similar thing with the sweet potatoes is that what I do with the potatoes is that, you know, do a big like seed grow out um, every three or five years, select new varieties off of that, and then clone those varieties for three or five years and so forth. Um, pretty excited about that. Um, there's a squash project. I have a bunch of winter squash projects going simultaneously. I have one with Machada squash that I'm pretty happy with. It's going in the right direction. It's definitely going the way I want it. I have a Maxima squash project too that I'm really happy with. I'm always breeding for disease resistance, insect resistance, adaptability to my climate, you know, good flavor, good storage ability for all the squashes. I have a lot of corn projects, but the corn projects kind of are evolving at any given point. So I'm never quite sure if what I'm doing with the corn is maybe the right direction I need to go in. Um, but I'm always saving corn seed and making corn crosses. Probably the thing that I'm gonna get some success with first is sweet corn. Uh, I'm trying to breed a completely homozygous, sugary enhanced, either like red or brown colored corn. And I'd also like to get some corn with like speckles, like blue speckles in the corn, sweet corn that is. Um, and I think I can do all that in the next three years. I'm pretty, pretty positive about the sweet corn. Um, eggplants, uh, I'm sure you've seen the pictures I have of like my gold foliage eggplants. Yeah, um, I was actually really variety, looking forward to yeah. those. So Yeah, <laughs> that variety, I did a big grow out of the seed of that. So I have, hopefully nothing bad happens with those. But that variety I've been working with now for like 15 or 17 years. And I've never done anything with it. And I think it's pretty cool. But what I'd like to do this year is start crossing it with other eggplants. Um, I found an eggplant variety this year that's pretty obscure that has purple leaves. So like, for example, what, what would happen if you cross the purple leaf one with the gold leaf one? Like that would be pretty amazing, I think. So, or can you cross in some wild species? Some of the wild species have like, like weird purple or orange thorns, some very strange, you know, characteristics. So I guess you could ultimately go for a an ornamental edible or even just a straight ornamental. Um, I'd love to breed tomatoes, but every time I try, I fail. I have a lot of ideas for what I want I have tomato breeding, but I'm not good at breeding tomatoes and it's never gone anywhere. Um, the last couple of years I've been working with skirret. Um, skirret's a pretty obscure perennial vegetable. Yeah, um, I have, actually I have a friend of mine yeah. in, in New Hampshire that's working with it. He sent me some, but uh, it, it got stuck yeah. in the mail and then I killed it because it got pretty toasted. So <laughs> yeah, I, can, I, I mean, couldn't revive it. Is like, I've been pretty happy with that. Like I planted some out I guess it would be 2017 and totally neglected it for two years and went through all sorts of hellish stuff like really cold really wet really hot really dry whatever full of weeds in the shade just miserable and it survived through all of it it seems to have no pest or disease problems it makes tons of seeds just really lovely plants and then this past year I dug everything up 
and then laid it all out and compared all the plants. And I had one plant with really big roots, and I had two plants that had pink roots. And those two I saved and I divided up the clumps and then replanted those into an actual garden bed where they had good soil and full sun and where I can actually take care of them. And they're huge plants now, like twice as big as they ever were when I was neglecting them. And I'm really hopeful that I can start making progress with, can I select for pink roots? Can I select for bigger roots? And I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, there's a lot of, if you look around online, you can find people who have worked with Spirit for a couple years, but I can't find anybody who's worked with it for say 10 or 20 years. My guess is that if you worked on it seriously for 10 or 20 years, you could probably make some massive improvements in that one. So that one I think has a lot of potential. Yeah, awesome. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. have to get some more seed and rootstock from him and you as well. I'd like to, and then you guys should definitely exchange stuff. I should hook you up with him. That's yonder, yonder mountain nursery. Oh, that'd be cool. And uh, he's on. Okay. Instagram. Yeah. 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 Check him cool. out. You should hook me up. Yeah. 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 Yeah, not many people are doing like anything with Spirit. I mean, there's a few people around. I posted pictures last year and some people commented on the pictures. Um, and there's some people around that are working with it. Um, but yeah, it's, um, there's all, I mean, I'm always trying new stuff, right? And like some of the stuff I'm trying this year, I'm super excited with. Um, I got seed from Experimental Farm Network of the, I think it's called Kaleidoscopic Kale Grex from Crystal Monics. And that stuff is incredible. Uh, at some point, I need to make a video or get some pictures of that stuff before the drought hurts it too bad. But man, that is like some of the most vigorous, beautiful, awesome looking kale I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I did a huge grow out of it. I think I planted at least 100 plants and I gave them really good spacing so they can get enormous. And what I want to do with that is then just benignly neglect them for the next year or so and not water them this summer, see what lives through this winter, and then, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, see what I can get out of those. See what overwinters, see what's actually perennial and what's not. And that's super fun. Uh, also from Experimental Farm Network, I got some of these um, Andes Green Mountain multiplier onions. And those are awesome too. Like they're really vigorous and really taken off. So definitely impressed with that so yeah I, most of the time i have too much crazy stuff going on probably more than i should but yeah it's good fun yeah i know there's always more projects than we have time for and, and then you find something something does you know something weird or you get a cool color and you're like oh <laughs> let me let me keep working on this so. yeah it goes in different directions you know you get surprises and you're like well okay I've, you know and there's, yeah. there's an aspect of serendipity to the whole thing, at least especially the way I do it, where it's not tightly controlled. Yeah. And if I find you know, strange things pop up, I just run with it. Yeah. Or you have a complete crop failure and you have to start over again the next year. <laughs> that but, happens. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, it just happens, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the reality and it's okay. So, so yeah, I mean, um, I, I have total failures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I expected, you know. But anyways, uh, so I saw you do a little bit of animal breeding. So I thought I'd kind of keep it short on oh, that yeah, one. Then totally. I got then I got some quick questions to ask you before we go. But yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Okay, so the main stuff that I work with is uh, chickens. And the breed that I've had the longest and I'm most serious about are Cubileas. 
And as the name would suggest, it's a Cuban breed. Um, it's basically an ornamental breed. They have really long flowing tails that should be below the horizontal. Um, it's a really rare breed. And I gotten good stock from an intern at work of mine uh, 12 years ago. And then I eventually hooked up with other breeders, uh, mostly through either going to chicken shows or online and was able to get some different bloodlines. So I've been breeding those for 12 years. Um, I've had a lot of you know, great chances to meet some cool people. I went on a work trip to Germany, oh man, it's probably like six years ago now. And I was given a tour of like uh, German poultry breeding operations by some of the big Kubelea people in the Kubelea club there. And they gave me some shops and some magazines. That was pretty awesome. Um, it's fun stuff. Like I just really like it. My grandfather was a serious poultry breeder, um, you know, and raised show chickens. So I kind of grew up with that. I was exposed to that a lot. I do also breed goats. Um, right now we have um, mostly purebred boar goats. Uh, and once again, my grandfather was a serious, like a really serious goat breeder, more serious than the chicken breeding. Like he had hundreds of ribbons for goats um, and had like a, a goat farm that he would advertise. Um, I grew up with goats too and just getting more serious with the goats gradually over the years and getting a bigger herd build up and getting better genetics over time. Um, I don't feel like I'm a super expert in boar goats yet. That's not what my grandfather raised. and um, Still learning about those a lot. Um, the chickens, I'm much more of an expert in because I feel like I've paid my dues and put in my time. Um, 10 years to become an expert and I've got 12. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so um, what's your favorite crop to grow? Yeah, that's a good question, man. Um, I really like growing corn. And I mean, like all like this, like classic, like farm crops, like corn, squash, beans, potatoes, the stuff my grandparents grew and the stuff that I have a lot of um, emotional connection to, you know, things that I just... Is, have a lot of like really strong bond with, I guess, on some sort of a gut level. That's the stuff I like the most. I do like playing around with new stuff, unusual exotic things, but you know, it's hard for me to not have corn or squash or beans. Cool. Uh, so what's your favorite crop to eat? Yeah, potatoes. Yeah, potatoes, totally. Yeah, potatoes especially now that I've got great. some of these new yeah, these new ones. I mean, man, some of the new stuff that I've gotten has been so well flavored and well textured, and it is definitely better than anything you can buy at the store. It's so good. So, yeah, I love the potatoes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to those. So, uh, I love potatoes too. Uh, so, what's your favorite tool or piece of equipment on your homestead? All right, so this will be a little bit longer, but so I'm really a big guy. So I'm six five. Um, and normal garden tools are too small for me and they cause a lot of strain on my back. And then also I tend to break them. So a while back out of frustration, I asked some of the maintenance guys at work if they could custom build me tools that I would never break and that would be designed for me. And they managed to do that. And what they basically did is they just welded seven foot steel pipe handles onto all the hose and rakes and shovels that I had broken and saved the heads up. <laughs> So now, now I have these indestructible handles uh, and they're sized right for me. So that 
you know, like a, a standard like four foot hoe isn't isn't sized properly for me, but a seven foot handle is good. Um, those are those tools, my custom made tools, are my favorite tools because I will never break them, and my grandkids can have them, and it's gonna be great because there's no back strain for me, and I don't have to worry about like being too rough with them. I'm gonna break the handle off. Awesome, that's actually a really good one. Uh, yeah. So, what's one word of advice or wisdom for all the farmers, growers, and homesteaders out there? Just save seeds. I mean, I always tell people that, but everything starts with saving seed. I mean, even if it's like the, the littlest thing, like, you know, a hosta plant in your yard makes seed, man, save the seed and grow it. It's easy to grow, and you'd be amazed at all the variation that, you know, one plant would produce. I mean, or literally anything. If it makes seed, save the seed and try to grow it and see what happens. And you get hooked. You get hooked really easy on watching all that variation happen and say, well, what if I did this? And what if I did that? Save seed. Awesome. So what are your, uh, what are your plugs? Where can people find you, contact you? So I have a YouTube, um, it's Esoteric Agriculture, and I put videos up as I get time and get around to it. Always behind on it, but I try to put them up frequently if I can. I'm on Instagram more than anywhere else. I occasionally check Twitter. Um, so I would say that's the best way to get a hold of me is uh, Instagram's the best and then definitely check out the YouTube channel because uh, then it kind of documents, I try to document all my projects. You know, sometimes a lot of my stuff is a lot of failure and that's okay. I think you can learn a lot from watching somebody else fail. So, it's not all success. Yeah, it's definitely not. <laughs> all right. So, it was good talking to you. I'm going to stop recording right now. Yeah, great. Good talking to you, man. Very good. Well, that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Chris for coming on. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Focus Seeds. You can also check out my website, focusseeds.com, or send me an email, focusseeds at protonmail.com. Focus is spelled P H O C A S. Happy growing.